Uh, we are continuing a series on the sermon series on 1 Timothy. And we are in the part of the chapter where Paul is instructing Timothy to be a really good servant for, of, of Christ. The most common way that Paul describes a Christian is Paul describes a Christian as a servant of Christ. We are not independent lords over our lives, but for a brief life in this world, we are called to be servants. And, and this became really true as I was uh, visiting people this month. Um, this month, I'm visiting people like bumblebees visit flowers on spring, warm spring day. I'm going this person, that person, that person. I mean, one, per, one, couple, one visit a week, but, you know, a lot for me. And as I was talking to our members, what struck me so much about the way they live their lives is all of them are serving they're serving their customers in their business. They're serving their family members. They're serving their in-laws. There was no member that I talked to who weren't devoting themselves in the service of somebody. And I was genuinely moved. There was no one that I met that says, yeah, PJ, I work 40 hours, and I just streamed Netflix all night. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I became dungeon master in my... You know, Dungeon Master and Dungeons and Dragons game. Yeah, I got that covered. No. They're busy serving people. And I was so blessed and thankful for our conversation. Because they are living what we are called to be, which is servants of Christ. And Paul is, once again, teaching Timothy similar things. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, what you're called to be is to be a good servant of Christ. Where's the word? Right? You'll be a good servant of Christ. Timothy's role in the church of Ephesus is Timothy is a pastor in the church of Ephesus. So Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you are to be a good servant of Christ if you are a faithful pastor. So Verses 6 to, I think, the end of the chapter, Paul describes what a good pastor in the side of Christ looks like. So this, these verses are more have to do with me and Pastor Ujin than to y'all. But it has implication for you, too. But specifically, it has to do with Paul's description of what a good pastor looks like in the sight of God. These qualities are important to you because that's the way that you need to evaluate us. I know all of you have, think about being a public figure, I suppose, right? Being, you know, the pastor of, the pastor of Embrace, I realize comes with certain sets of expectations which leads to certain sets of judgment. I'm pretty sure, right, all of you have an opinion of who I am or what I do. Cannot be helped, right? You have an opinion about me. If I were a thinner-skinned individual, I don't think I can do this job. 
but I understand because you have an image of me, image of what a pastor is, because your image of a pastor is based on your past. Oftentimes, your image of a pastor is really determined by the pastor dude who, ended, who made an impact on your life. So maybe when you were growing up, your pastor who made an impact on your life was a super charismatic, super spiritually gifted person. Passionate for the Lord, right? And maybe all your life you had that image of what a pastor is. And compared to that, I don't meet that, I don't, I don't conform to the image that you have. Some of you have an image of a pastor who's supposed to be this really nice guy. Okay, right? I guess I'm nice, but I'm not the nicest guy in the world. Right? Ask the movie theater attendant that I annoyed yesterday. Right? That movie theater Boro. What's that about? You mean the icon, Sean Star? Oh, man, don't go there. It's like the most impersonal. Right? So I'm not the nicest guy in the world, but if you think... Pastors are supposed to be the nicest, kindest, sweetest, meekest guy in the world. I'm not going to meet your expectation. Some of you think pastors should be like a CEO. I should be an expert manager of all things. That I am the Donald Trump, bad example. I'm supposed to be, I don't know, the Jeff Bezos of Embrace. All decisions come through me and I go, you do this, you do that, you do this. I'm supposed to be the expert manager of the church. But clearly, that's not me. Regardless of what your expectation of how you judge my position, I love you, and I think the most highly of you, but it doesn't really matter, though, at the, at the long run. Because how, I'm evalu- how this position evaluated, ultimately, God will evaluate my position and how faithful I am. And, and, and the qualities that Paul lists in these verses are standards in which God will judge every pastor at the end of their lives. This is the standard that God will judge me, Pastor Ujin, and every pastor that comes before and after me. These are the standards of how God will look at me. I love you, but the way you look at me, ultimately, in the eternal life of things, is irrelevant. Does that sound mean? Try to be the nicest guy in the world. And the reason I'm telling you this is, let's study together what the job of a pastor really is. Is it to be the nicest guy in the world? Is it to be, you know, is it to be the CEO? Is it to be a super charismatic, fragilistic kind of guy? Let's look at it. Look. Verse 6, Paul says, If you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. For those of you who aren't here last week, you would figure, what in the world is Paul talking about? These things that Paul mentions in verse 6 are the things that Paul talked about in the previous verse, in the previous section. What did Paul talk about in the previous section? He was talking, he was teaching about these false teachers who were diluting the gospel of Jesus Christ. These false teachers were telling, were teaching the people, Christians in Ephesus, in order for God to accept you, you need to, you need to abstain from sex. Even if you're married, you can't have sex. Yeah. 
in order for you to be accepted by God, you can't have sex of any kind, and you can't eat meat. All of us will go to hell right now, because we're all lovers of meat here. That's the only way. These are the only ways. The things that we teach are the ways in which God will accept you. The problem with this is, this is a betrayal of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, rather, the, the way you fight these false teachers is by teaching your congregation the truth. Paul is saying, if you take sex, for example, and analyze it in the light of God's revealed truth, and think about it and analyze it in God's revealed truth, you will realize sex and meat are both gifts from God. Marital sex, right? Sex within the union. Okay, well, Pastor Jay says I can have sex. No, this amazing physical union between husband and wife, and all meat created by God, including, you know, those so that, you know, Korean Sunday places, they're all given by God. And you should praise God for it. Paul says the only way that you can praise God for this amazing marital physical union and praise God for these meats is to look at these things in the light of truth. So when Paul is saying in verse 6, these, if you put these things before the brothers, put these things before the brother means teaching them. If you teach your brothers the truth, you will be a good servant of Christ. The number one thing that God will look at me in Judgment Day is, did I teach you the truth? He's not going to ask me, did I, did, I pre, did I pray in tongues? Did I prophesy? Did I do all these things? He's going to say, good old Jay, did you present your brothers and sisters, the truth. Job, umrah, numeral for me is to present you the truth. The way that I love Jesus Christ and the way that I love you is primarily through presenting you to the truth. Guys, I adore spending time with you. Yesterday I was telling my wife, I think I've changed. When I was younger, I would just also, whenever I worked or whenever I did ministry, I was just obsessed with like, not losing private time. I was so obsessed with just guarding my private time. But now, I don't care about my private time. All my free time, I either want to spend it with you and, and Charlotte or Caleb or my church people. That's all I want to do. So I adore spending time with you. Expensive sometimes, but I, I adore spending time with you. But me spending time with you doesn't change you. You see? Me spending time with you is not the best way for me to love you. Me giving you the word of life is the way that I love you. Remember when Peter betrayed Jesus? And Jesus, after his resurrection, reinstated Peter in John chapter 21 to a guy who felt guilty for betraying his Lord. Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I do. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, feed my lambs. 
Jesus asked again, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Jesus said again, take care of my sheep. Jesus asked a third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Jesus, you know that I do. Why do you ask these questions? Jesus says for the final time, then feed my sheep. You see, pastors, number one priority is to feed you. Feed you the best food, best truth that I can possibly meditate and pray over and, and, and study and try to present, you to, the, to present you with the best truth. Do you understand? Because it is the truth of Jesus Christ. It is the truth of Christ that gives eternal life. In John chapter 6, the people, John chapter 6 is about the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. After Jesus fed the 5,000, these guys were like amazed by the miracle they witnessed. So they tried to find, like, you know, follow Jesus. And when Jesus finally told them, if you want to be my disciple, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. So all these 5,000 guys just abandoned Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and Jesus says, do you want to abandon me too? And this is Peter said. This is what Peter said. Peter says, "Lord, from if we leave you, where do we go if we leave you? For whom will we go to? Lord, you have the words of eternal life." Jesus, the words of Christ are the words that give eternal life. This is what I realized yesterday as I was praying for you. There are things that we desperately want that only Jesus can give. There are things that we want. The ultimate thing is love. But there is this thing called love that exists outside of ourselves. Love doesn't dwell within you. Perfect love dwells outside of you. Perfect wisdom dwells outside of you. Perfect goodness dwells outside of you. Perfect kindness resides outside of you. All these things that we truly want, it resides outside of you. It is not in you. Regardless of what Hollywood nonsense people say, truth is not in you. Love is not in you. It is outside of you. True love, true justice, true peace, true sanity, true goodness, true kindness is with Jesus Christ. And what being saved means these things that we look for that is outside of us. When you are saved, Christ takes these things outside of us and he gives it in you. Does that make sense? You want perfect love. And you try to find perfect love through people, through, I don't know, projects or whatever. But perfect love can only come when, that, when the holder of that perfect love, Jesus Christ, brings that love outside of you and brings, brings it into you. I'll give you an example. I went to Georgia last week. Right? I went to Georgia because my wife's a fangirl of this violin, as all of you know. Right? So I went to Georgia last week. It was a life-changing trip. It really was. And the, re- and the reason was it was a life-changing trip was God was everywhere that trip. He really was. It was just everywhere. It's miracle after miracle after miracle. It's crazy. One of the miracles is, like, I, you know, because I have such a low rating in Uber, 
my New York trip just wrecked my Uber score. Like I have 4.7, it's very embarrassing. So I used Lyft. So I used Lyft. And when we were coming back from the concert, we we're talking about God with our Lyft driver. And we, it, it, the Lyft driver was so excited about you know, God, and I was a pastor, she's a pastor. She was so excited, she called her husband over the phone. And I talked to my Lyft driver's husband. But the thing that most made last week's trip so memorable is because I got to witness God transforming my wife before my very eyes. All we did was talk for three days straight. Set five hours, and all I did, and all we did was talk, eat ridiculously expensive thing. I get, I'm really mad about it. But like, but talk. And throughout our conversation, I could see her consciousness and her mind shifting. And our affections and priorities shifting. It is happening before my eyes. That is eternal life. This awareness, this love, this sense of purpose that she did not have within her. Christ brought it from outside. He, he brings it inside of her. The words of Christ does that to us. And therefore, it is the job of the pastor to present this word of life to the best of my ability so that God will use me and these words so that he will give you what you do not have, which is life, love, clarity, goodness, forgiveness, restoration, shalom. That is why my highest priority, God says, is to feed your people. But unfortunately, there are a lot of pastors out there who do not think this is their number one priority. It's weird. And they don't think this is the number one priority because no one really told them when they were going into the ministry that this is what they're called to do. It's weird. Some people go into the, oftentimes people go into the ministry because, you know, like they were the superstar servants of their college group, you know? As Korean would say, Tongnopa, like the, the superstar, like June Lee-like figure, like long hair, guitar, Look really sincere. <gasps> you are a pastor. You're going to be a pastor. And if everyone tells you enough that you're going to be a pastor, with an inflated sense of ego, you go, yeah, yeah, I'll be a pastor. But no one takes a June lead type and says, June lead type, before you go to the ministry, this is your job description. Do you, to, to convey, communicate the word of, word of God to your people. Do you love the word of God? Do you think about the word of God? Are you passionate about the word of God? Forget about your talent or whatever in church. Does the word live in you? If the June Leopa says, I don't know, then I would say, I don't think you're ready yet. No one does this to people who want to go to seminary. You seem like this good guy at church. Maybe you should go to seminary. And they go, okay, and they go to seminary, and they get out of seminary, and they don't know what they're supposed to do. 
They just do what they're culturally taught to do, which is to like kind of look religious on the outside, I guess. But whose sermons are weak? And they don't know what to do. The number one problem with Christians, in my opinion, are, are people who are not preaching true words of God to, to their people because they don't know this is their job description. But this is my job description. So when you evaluate me, I have many faults. Once again, ask the movie theater attendant who got really snippy with me yesterday. Bearded guy got really snippy with me. I'm not the nicest guy in the world. And maybe I don't have the CEO manager your skill. But you need to evaluate pastors as if, are they communicating the word of God to you? Second thing. Paul says, to be a good servant, not only do you must present truth to your people, you'll be a good servant of Christ if you're being trained in the word of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. What Paul means here is this. In order for you to be a good servant of Christ, you need to nurture. You need to be nurtured by the words of God and good doctrine. Doctrine is a set of beliefs and principles that is based on the word of God. Right? So in order for me to be an effective preacher, a teacher, I have to be nurtured and nourished by the words of, by, by the Bible and by good doctrine consistently. I am only as effective as what goes into me. If I don't read the word of God, and if I don't meditate upon his word, and if I don't study good doctrine on a regular basis, my teaching to you will not be powerful and impactful. It won't. I'm only effective as much as I know God intellectually, spiritually, Theoretically, so it is incumbent upon me to study. I need to study. And I'm trying my best to. I'm trying, I'm trying, kids. I'm reading the scripture, striving to study the scriptures every day. And let's try to start listening to R.C. Sproul's sermon on the passage of Luke every day. Try to read two books a month. Because I know if I don't, if my mind is not constantly nourished by the things of God, I'm no good to you. That's why in Acts 2, the apostles formed the deacon board so that the apostles can devote, my, devote themselves to the study, teaching, and prayer. I need to. Does that mean you would say, Pastor Jay, does that mean all you do is study and preach and not spend time with us? Of course that's not what it means. I'm not 
call to go to my high tower. Every, every like, preach, come down, down from mountaintop. This says the this says the Lord. Peace out and go back to my high mountaintop and come back the week later. That's not what I'm called to be. But even my visitation has to be impacted by my nourishment of the Word of God. When I meet with you, I just don't talk about Batman, do I? I just don't talk about how's the weather and your kids. Gently, in a personal way, I don't preach to you. Sometimes if you need preaching, I'm going to preach to you, but, some, but I don't do that. But I need to communicate God's word in a more personal way when I meet with you. But the only way that I can do this is for me to be saturated with the word of God. I visited someone last Wednesday. I ended up speaking to, the, to, to those people for three hours. And three hours, we talked about a lot of different things. But it was guided by the truth of God. Even pastor visitation has to be nourished and nurtured by good doctrine and the word. First threat of Christendom is pastors who don't know their doctrine description. Second threat to Christendom are pastors who are too busy to study and pray. Number one reason why pastors don't pray individually or study is because they say they're too busy. I have no idea what they're busy with, right? To be honest, I have no idea. But they say they're busy. The problem is if they're busy, too busy studying and praying, to, to study and pray on their own, they're not going to make much impact on the church. So the way you evaluate me is whether that I faithfully preach God's word to you and whether how much that I spend time devoting myself to studying good doctrine and the, word, and the word of God. Do you understand? Paul says in verse 7, not only does the good servant devote, teaches his people the truth and devote themselves to good doctrine and the word of God, verse 7, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. What is that? Pastors are very, the way pastors are tempted to not do their jobs oftentimes is based on distractions. The way Satan distracts all of us, the way that Satan derails us from the life of God is he distracts us, right? Distraction is the number one you know, weapon that Satan uses against us. And one of the main way things that Satan uses to distract pastors is by making them obsessed over secondary things that ultimately don't matter. In Paul's day, these false teachers, they were not teaching the word faithfully. 
But they were more focused on these myths, these myths about Old Testament figures. What Abraham, like the, 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 the Abraham, the untold story. Jacob, behind the scenes, right? Joseph, the true Hollywood story. They were like, they were like, they were obsessing about non-canonical sources, you know? Sean, no, there's Star Wars literature that are canon and not canon. And these guys were obsessed with non-canonical myths. And they weren't really devoting themselves to the truth. Pastors are similarly tempted to be distracted from their primary role of feeding you the truth, but being distracted over secondary myths. Things that are not ultimately important or truthful. If you go to a red state, right? If you go to the state in like Arkansas, Kansas, Texas, they're gonna, a lot of churches over there talk about, you know, Republican talking points. Their sermons are very in line with Fox News, right? If you go to the blue state churches, a lot of their sermon points are, are exactly in line with liberal progressive sources, right? It's weird. Even their pulpits are guided by political things and not truth. If you go to a certain church, they're like preoccupied with supernatural things. Like I, re- I went to a website yesterday, it's called School of the Supernatural. If you enroll with us, we will teach you the methods of Phenomenal inner healing and, you know, external healing. Come to us, pay our tuition. We will train you to be a supernatural healer. I go, really? One of the youth groups, retreat, one of the bigger churches here, one of the teachers says a few years ago, they at a retreat, they had a seminar about teaching like youth group kids how to bust ghosts. I go, what? You have a Ghostbuster seminar? How to fight demons, young youth group kids. Really? Secondary, unimportant, ultimately not truthful thing. Paul says, man of God, don't have to do anything about these things. But rather, devote yourself to godliness. Godliness, the definition of godliness is this. I'm making really good time, by the way. Right? Um, definition of godliness. Oh, I, I skipped the whole chunk. It's okay. Saves us time. Right? <laughs> Saves us time. You're good that I don't rely upon my notes, otherwise we'll be here longer. Um, godliness is conforming your mind and your behavior to mirror what, what God's will for you. That's what godliness is. Living a life of godliness is a pattern, pattern of living pattern of living that conforms to the thoughts and behavior that God expects from his people. That's what godliness is. Understand? Think godly things, behave in a moral, upright way. That's what godliness is. So Paul is saying, man of God, servant of God, do not be so obsessed with these secondary issues. I remember when the whole George Floyd COVID thing, remember that? The tsunami of COVID and George Floyd, everyone in America was just going crazy over these two things. All the, a lot of the pastors are just swayed by these things, these political movements. 
I was impacted too. I was listening to a lot of like right talk radio. And I was just, my mind was just filled with obsessed with these talking points. But if I had to go back in time and visit, visit PJ in circa 2020, I would say, get your head, get your head out of the, of the secondary issues. Devote yourself to godliness. Train yourself, Paul says, to be godly. Rather than focus on secondary issues, you need to work out your godliness in your life. That's what Paul is saying. You need to work really hard to think godly things and behave in a godly way. It doesn't come secondary to you. You need to strive for it. You need to live godly. I know when I say godly to you, you think about, oh man, something that I don't want to do. Ugh. I don't want to not, not watch that thing, you know? You know? I don't want to not, not say those things, you know? Ugh, such a chore. I don't want to do it. God loves me. God loves my heart. He doesn't want me to do anything. Don't think about godliness as like, like broccoli that you need to eat. Maybe you, got like, you guys like broccoli. I don't know. Consider godliness not as something that you don't want to do. But you've got to rethink godliness as something that is incredibly beneficial to you. One of the books that I'm reading is called Meaning of a Servant, a, a, a Doctor's Casebook Based on the Bible. It's written by this doctor named Paul Trenet, who's a reformed Christian, who was also a physician, and he wrote a book. And he counseled a lot of people as a physician, and based on the Bible, and this is the book that he wrote. And one of the things that I clearly remember about this book, he says, Christians need, the way Christians honor God is by taking care of their body. The way that Christians honor God is taking care of their soul. God has breathed. Your soul comes from the breath of God. God designed your body. Therefore, it is incumbent upon you to take care of it. You understand? Look, it's going to get a little nerdy right now. Okay, okay, everyone. Oh, it's going to get a little nerdy, right? It's going to get a little nerdy. Here we go. Okay, here we go. There's a category of philosophy called dualism. Told you it was nerdy, right? Dualism says our souls and our bodies are separate, right? Our soul is pure and good. Our body is decaying and bad, right? Ancient Greeks believe in this. A lot of the modern people believe in this, right? My soul is separate from my body. Prime example of such theory is Jesus hates the sin, but loves the sinner, right? Sin that I come in my body, Jesus said, but my soul, oh, he loves. That's dualistic thinking, right? I am not my body, I am my soul. I can do whatever I want with my body without God compromising his love for me. That's dual, dual, dualistic, that's dualism. 
Christians, we don't believe that. We believe our souls and our bodies are intricately connected. They're intricately connected to the point where what you do with your body is a direct reflection of, of your soul. That's why Jesus says, many will say to me on the judgment day, Lord, I loved you, but I didn't obey you. Jesus says to such person who says they love me, but who didn't obey me, I have no idea who they are. He's saying, just because you say you love me, but if you don't obey me, you don't really love me. First John. If you say you love God but hate your brothers and sisters, then you are a liar. The the love of God is not in you. If you say you love God but with your body you hate people with your lips, John says you're a liar. There is an intricate connection between your soul and your body. You can say I love God, but if your butt is not regularly with his people, And worshiping him. I don't think your soul loves God. Do you understand? You can say you love God, but if your body's not here worshiping him, regardless of what you think you believe about God, your body reveals that your soul really doesn't love him. And he's not a real priority to you. Do you understand? Training godliness is training your body and your mind, taking care of your body and your mind so that your thinking and the way you behave are all in conformity to the will of God. And it's good for you. Godliness, thinking God's thought, trying to interpret all things through the lens of God, using your body for the service of his kingdom and for for your brothers and sisters in the church, active development of godliness, striving of godliness, is good for you. Not striving for godliness as momentarily convenient as it may seem for you is not ultimately good for you. It's not. This is John MacArthur. And this is what, this is what, and this is what Paul is saying. Forget John MacArthur. This is what Paul is saying. Verse 8. Godliness is of, while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul is saying, train yourself to be godly because it is good for you. It is beneficial for you in the present age and in the age to come. Let's quote John MacArthur. He says, godliness, the benefits of godliness are these. When you strive to be godly, You become rich, you have rich, fulfilled, God-blessed, fruitful, effective, useful life now and in the life to come. Truly, 
If you train yourself to be godly, train yourself to be godly, first of all, number one, is to try to think your thoughts after God's thought every day. The reason you read the Bible, it is so that you will train your mind not to think the way that you wanted to think about things, but train your mind to think about the way God thinks about these things. Okay? Reading scripture is not just good practice. It is you thinking thoughts after God's thought. And when things happen to you, godliness also means don't just react to it, but try to strive, look at the meaning of what that event that you're going through means through the lens of Scripture. Godliness means saying no, there are things that are really bad for you. There are some TV, like Netflix shows that are really bad for you. Let's be honest. I don't even watch Netflix anymore. What's good? Beef? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. There's, there's some shows that are really bad for you. Stay away. Lack of sleep is bad for you. Uh, sometimes, okay? Yeah, five hours is enough, as my dad said. Right? I said five hours, dad. That's plenty. I go, dang, man. Right? No wonder I have love issues. Anyway, nutrition, all these things matter. They affect your soul. But one of the best things that you can do to be godly is to constantly commune with God and commune with each other. I was listening to Paul Tripp's sermon yesterday. Paul Tripp, I don't know how you describe a Christian writer, right? He says, the Christian heart flourishes when they commune with God, commune with God, and commune with the brothers and sisters of Christ. That's how God designed us. He really did design you that way. He designed you so that you will live and you will thrive when you're constantly in communication with him and when you're constantly in communication with each other. So part of godliness training is making yourself, perhaps motivating yourself, forging yourself to join small groups or any, any Christian discussions so that you, your heart can understand God more. If you strive for godliness, you will live a rich, fulfilled, God-blessed, fruitful, effective ministry, um, effective life. I'm telling you, I love my family, and my kids love me, and we have a deep connection. Working on my thing with my son, but it's okay. But the only way, the reason why there is a deep fruit in my life is because I commune with God and y'all regularly. I see God coming alive in my life. I see the blessings of God coming alive in life because by God's grace, I strive after him. And that's what you need to do. Do you understand? Paul says, Timothy, secondary issues, no bueno. Strive for godliness. And lastly, by the way, I'm really impressed that I made this time. because There were so many things I need to talk about. Number 10, for this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Toil means hard labor. Oh, I love the word toil. 
If I had had a third kid, I would name him Toil. I love that word. I love the word toil. I love hard work. I really really do love hard work. I really do. Ah, gosh, man, I really do. Right? I love hard work. Pastors should work really hard. As Paul Washer says, pastors should go to, men of God should go to bed exhausted every night. Were you so tired that you can't move your body because you are so busy serving the Lord and serving other people? That's the life that God wants you to be. And I said, amen, Brother Paul. You should toil, Timothy, Paul says. But remember that our hope is in the living God, and that's true. No matter how hard I study, no matter how hard I preach, no matter how many times I visit, no matter how how many times that I pray, Ultimately, the fruit of this labor belongs to God. It really does. Look, the word that, like the word, the Korean word that I am like that was in my mind this week is smyeolda. It means like the best way to describe it in English is like being immersed or marinated. Right? It just becomes like I don't know, there's no word that describes this. Koreans, you're so lucky. Smirda. Smirda. Truth becomes part of you. You begin to swimming in truth and clarity. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I preach, I can't let the word of God smirda immerse in you. I cannot do that. Only God can do that. That's what I know. So my hope and the hope of all pastors is in the living God. And that's the hope that you have. How do you change your people, your friends, your children? How do, the gospel, how do you pray that the gospel impact your people around you? You pray that the word of God smyodro, or let the word of God immerse in them. Because only he can do that. So how do you evaluate a pastor? Does he preach the truth? Does he study, devote himself to the study of God's word and doctrine? Is he focused on living a godly life? Is he working really hard? But is he also hoping in the Lord? These are the measures that God will judge me, Pastor Ujin, and every pastor. And these are the measures in which that you need to look at us. Let us pray. Let's uh, pray for the pastors of our church. Please pray for me, Pastor Ujin, and uh, the the senior pastor of of SPC. Um, Let's pray that we will be people of truth. That, that, That God will remind us that our primary goal, primary aim, is to present you with the truth. Like I said, many people, they don't think this is their primary job duties. Let's pray that God will awaken us to see that this is our job 
job responsibility. Let's pray that we will be confident in the truth of God. Pray for us. Pray that we will work hard, we will study hard, we will pray hard for, for the glory of Christ and for you. But also pray for yourselves. Pray that the word of God, the truth of God will become emerged, submerged in your heart so that you'll be convinced of the truth. It is one thing to know truth intellectually. It is a whole other realm to know truth in an immersive way. Let's pray that the truth of God will be immersed in you and in the life of the people that you love. Let us pray for these things and we'll close.